Morning, everyone. Uh, have you ever come across or heard the phrase man up? About six weeks ago, someone said it to me uh, <laughs> directly, and in fact, that person is sitting here this morning, and it's not my wife. And the setting was a Friday night church five-a-side football game at Olympia Leisure Centre. And I had just been uh, kicked in the foot, accidentally, of course, which aggravated an existing injury. And I had to hobble off to check the damage. And as I stood at the sideline feeling sorry for myself, nursing my foot, someone, and I'm not looking at anyone in particular, uh, turned around and lovingly, pastorally said, David, for goodness sake, put your shoe back on and man up. (laughs) So thank you, Paul Montgomery. It is an increasingly popular phrase. Uh, John Terry, Chelsea captain, used it not that long ago before an important Champions League game whenever he said, we have to man up as a group of players and take responsibility. But what does it actually mean? I think we all have a sense of what it means. But let me give you some definitions. To increase the manly elements of one's activities and one's life in general. To face a situation courageously or to fulfill your responsibilities as a man, despite your insecurities. Man up. It is a great phrase, and today, as we uh, continue our journey through the Bible and pick up from where we left off last Sunday, we're actually going to confront what I think is an early version of this, found in the Old Testament. Uh, And as part of what we're going to do and look at, I'm going to reflect on what this idea, what this phrase might mean for Christian men here this morning. So I am going to be speaking in the second half of this, specifically in a sense, the Christian men. But I do want to park that for now and pick it up in a few moments. Last week we left the story, and if you're visiting here, we're going right through the story of the Bible as a church. And last week we, uh, we left the story whenever David... And Bathsheba had had another son. Their first son conceived during a lust-fueled initial one-night stand had died when he was only one week old. And it was a tragic consequence of David's sin. Well, not only David's sin, but David's sins, whole catalogue of them. But having acknowledged them, and repented and discovered the mercy of God. David and Bathsheba, who were now man and wife, they were granted the gift of another son. And they named this son Solomon, which means God's peace. Shalom. And for the next three services, we're going to explore a little of his story. And so we pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 2. I think it's page 300 and roughly 13-ish. 336, thanks Richard, 336 in the Bibles in the pews. Now, let's remember that David had more than one wife. It was a cultural thing. And as he reached the end of his life, one of his other sons from another wife, someone called Adonijah, put himself forward and set himself up as the successor to David's throne. And this guy did solicit some support. Joab, for example, and if you were here last Sunday night, you'll have met him. He was David's commander-in-chief who resolved the Uriah problem. But others, like Nathan the prophet, they refused to back this guy's campaign. And whenever word got back to David about his son's self-coronation, he was having none of it. 
And therefore, he explicitly confirmed that Solomon would, in fact, be the next king. Solomon would succeed him. And as David lay on his deathbed, he sent for Solomon. And he shared some intriguing words with him. And as we read them, there are aspects of what David said that are uplifting, that are positive, that are expected. But there's also disturbing features about David's farewell speech. Parts of it that leave a scratch in our heads and wondering what is going on in David's thinking. He appears to be a person of deep contradiction. Caught between moving expressions of faith on one hand and somewhat unnerving, unsettling, worrying declarations of raw power and revenge on the other. And I want to look at both of those dimensions. So let's stand together, as we often do for the public reading of God's word, and read the first nine verses. I'll read them. First Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you will prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me, that if your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Now you yourself know what Joab did to Zeruiah and what he did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood, he stained the belt round his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at their, your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gera the Benjamite from Behurim, who called down bitter, bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahaheim. When he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his grey head down to the grave in blood. Seems that uh, David had a problem with men with grey hair. But grab a seat. David, if you look at verse 10, David dies. And it says that, that Solomon becomes king. But what happens next as Solomon establishes his throne and secures his kingdom and takes on board his dad's dying advice? It is fascinating what happens next. It's questionable. It's surprising to say the least. And what I want to do just for this part is, is really trace the story. Adonijah had been told to go home. If you look at the very last phrase of chapter 1, Solomon had told his older brother to go home. But it turns out he didn't. Instead, he goes to see Solomon's mum. He goes to Bathsheba. And he asks her, oh, here you hear this, he asks her if he could marry his dad's hot water bottle. Now, if you think I'm being inappropriate here, look back at 1 Kings chapter 1, the very first two verses. When King David was very old, he could not keep warm. 
when they put the covers over him. So his attendants said to him, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that the Lord, our king, may keep warm. Strange, to say the least. Adonijah asks Bathsheba to go and ask Solomon if he can marry this young virgin. And when Bathsheba presents the request to Solomon, he goes berserk. Because as far as he's concerned, his older brother is just trying yet again to muscle in on the throne. And so he dispatches Beniah, who is Solomon's personal assassin, to kill Adonijah, which he does immediately. News of this then reaches Joab who on one occasion, according to verse 5 we read together, had murdered two men during peacetime without David's authority, without David's blessing. Plus, in addition, as I said earlier, he had supported Adonijah's wrongful claim to the throne. So whenever Joab hears what has happened to his friend, he panics, understandably. And he heads for the tent of the Lord where he enters and he grabs hold of the horns on the altar. Thinking that he would find protection, divine protection as God's guest. Solomon, unfortunately, was in no mood for mercy. And so he dispatches his personal assassin again. And he goes and he instructs Joab, come out. Come out. Joab refuses. Solomon orders Benaiah to go in and kill Joab on the spot, which he does. Two people now dead, but there's still one who remains on David's hit list. That one is Shimei. Now, he's the second gray-haired man who David wanted, quote, brought down to the grave in blood. Now, initially, Solomon has compassion, it would seem, And he decides to give this guy a chance by letting him build a house in Jerusalem. But there's a condition. You do not cross the Kidron Valley. Don't dare cross the Kidron Valley. He's effectively put under house arrest. Shimei keeps his promise for three years. But then one day he violates parole whenever he chases a couple of runaway slaves and he enters the no-go zone. Solomon is none too impressed reminds him of his oath, and then hands him over to his hatchet man, Benaiah. And he does what he does best. He kills him. And so chapter 2 ends with this comment. Last part of verse 46. The kingdom was now firmly established, is what a number of translations, how a number of translations capture this. The kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hand. Now, it's that statement and it's that revelation that actually helps to make some sense of this. To actually make some sense of what is otherwise very difficult and gritty material. Here's another example of horrible history. David's advice to his son and Solomon's actions flowing out of his dad's closing words, they are uncomfortable. I find it quite, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Maybe even a little entertaining to read back. But it's distressing. And yet it seems these actions were necessary. That if Solomon was going to establish his rule, if he was going to secure his throne, 
then eliminating and dealing decisively with those who were intent on destroying it or undermining it was unavoidable. You see, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had said to David, listen, David, your kingdom will be preserved forever. It'll endure. But as we have discovered during this journey through the Bible, there have always been those who have tried to rewrite the story, who have tried to amend God's script, those who have been opposed to God's purposes. And yet what we have discovered, and this is another prime example here, is that as God works out his purposes, nothing and no one is going to stand in his way, and sometimes that means there will be casualties. Such is the complexity of Old Testament history. We may struggle with that, and I know some here do. You may even react against this. But there's no getting away from it. There's no getting around it. There are no easy answers. In order for the Davidic line to continue via Solomon and ultimately to Jesus, the kingdom needed to be firmly established. And therefore, at this point in the story, all threats had to be neutralized and the king had to eliminate all those who stood in its way. Here's the point. God allowed it. Let's go back to David's final words and look at the second dimension. Because in addition to eliminating enemies as a means of securing the kingdom, David also stressed the importance of manning up. Look again at verse 2 as David begins his speech. And here it is in a couple of different translations. Solomon, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, so be strong and act like a man. Or... I am about to go the way of all the earth, so be strong and show yourself to be a man. And therefore what I want to do is I want to actually take this and apply it directly to the men here this morning. Now I'm not suggesting this material is irrelevant to women, but maybe it's just the men who specifically need to hear it. I don't know. We live in a culture that defines masculinity in all sorts of different ways. We actually live in a culture that seems relatively confused about what it actually means to be a man today. And therefore, to come across a phrase like this in God's word, act like a man, show yourself to be a man. Whenever I come across a phrase like this in God's word, I find hope, because there may be potential enlightenment. And so how a dying David goes on to define being a man is critically important, not only for his son Solomon thousands of years ago, but also for us in 2011. And locked up in David's advice are at least three interconnecting components. But notice that these are not just David's thoughts, David's perspective. Take a look at the second half of verse 3. These flow from a higher authority. This is what the Lord your God requires. So this is not just human reflection. This is divine instruction on what it means to act like a man. And it starts with an obedient submission to Scripture. Solomon, show yourself to be a man of the word. Keep God's decrees, David says. 
Keep his commands. Keep his laws and regulations. A couple of Sunday nights ago, we looked at God's set criteria for each and every king. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And regarding scripture, God gave some very specific instructions. Here's what he said via Moses. See, when the king takes the throne, he's to write out for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him. He's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. What God was saying was this. The king is to write out the law, the Torah, the available word of God at the time. And what has he got to do? Read it all the days of his life. Why? So that he knows it. So that he absorbs it. So that he follows it carefully. And as I said, and I repeat again this morning, I don't think, or I don't believe, based on the rest of Scripture, that this advice is specific to kings. So, for example, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Deuteronomy 8, man doesn't live by bread, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. To man up and show ourselves as men of God's essential word, this bread, this hammer, this scalpel, this lamp, this light, this mirror, this fire has got to shape our minds. Otherwise, our minds will be far too easily conformed to the pattern of this world and this culture. And man, let me ask you a question. And this was one of the questions of examine used by a spiritual formation group that I used to be part of. And every time I met this group, there was a guy who asked me this question. David, how has the Bible shaped the way you think and live this week? And so, man, I'm asking you that this morning. How has God's word shaped the way you think and live this week? The discipline of consistently engaging with Scripture is a very real challenge for 21st century men whose lives are busy, active, demanding and cluttered but it's imperative that we immerse ourselves in this and we learn to revere God through it because that's how you learn to revere God you learn to revere God through it and then you live it out you become obedient to it man up become a man of God's word secondly become a man of integrity In verse 4, David re-emphasized and drew Solomon's attention to a promise that God had made to him and his descendants. And it was this, watch how you live. Watch how you live. In other words, your life's got to ring true. There can be no inconsistency between what you believe and how you behave. They were, as it says in verse 3, to walk in obedience. So in other words, this is to be active. This is to be vigil. 
This is to be lived out. And later in 1 Kings chapter 9, God actually reminds Solomon about the importance of this whenever he says directly to, to Solomon, as for you, walk before me, what with? With integrity of heart, Solomon. That's how you're to walk before me, with integrity of heart. You see, as someone has said, if you have integrity, nothing else matters. If you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. What you say and how you live, men, has got to mesh. There should be little or no contradictions in our lives. Otherwise, we lack integrity, we risk hypocrisy, and we face a credibility gap. Men, watch your life. Monitor it closely. But how do you do that? Back to that spiritual formation group that I used to be part of. Here were a set of the questions that was helpful in working out what it means to watch your life, to kind of regular spiritual MOT. Here's a question, men, a set of questions to ask yourself every week. What temptations have I faced this week and how did I respond? Is there anything in my life I need to confess to God and or to anyone else? Do I need to extend forgiveness or ask forgiveness of someone? Who do I need to thank? Who or how have I been a blessing to others this week? What wisdom have I gained from the experiences that God has led me through this week? What have I learned from my reading of God's word and other material? And how have I taken care of myself this week emotionally, physically, spiritually? If you want a copy of those, I've got a number of copies printed out. If anybody wants to take one, please ask me later on. Show yourself to be a man of God, Solomon, which means be a man of God's word, be a man of integrity, and then the last part of verse 4, be a man of commitment. Walk faithfully before me with all your heart and soul. Solomon, don't be half-hearted. Don't be half-hearted. Make sure you are sold out for God. And the sad discovery, and I know some of you are probably making this journey in your heads, is that Solomon didn't remain faithful. He allowed himself to be compromised. And I don't want to give away too much of the story. We're going to look at it in more detail next week. But many of you will know that although Solomon initially took on board his dying dad's advice, he soon messed up just like his dad. Solomon allowed himself to be compromised in three areas. In his worship, by wealth, and by women. And if we're really honest, guys, those are still and will always remain major areas of potential compromise in our lives. I know Far too many guys who have become casualties of the faith because they've compromised in their worship, by their attitude to wealth, and in their morality with other women. And therefore the call to faithfulness and total 100% heart surrender to God is critical for every single man here this morning. Faithful commitment to God in every single area of your life is a real challenge but it's the path that we've been called to walk 
David's famous last words to Solomon begin, Solomon, be strong. Act like a man. And if we are going to be men who man up using a biblical framework, then I suggest we need to immerse and saturate ourselves in this. We need to watch how we live in order to ensure integrity. And we need to stay faithfully committed in the midst of temptations to compromise. And men, may God help us.